Welcome to the Awake Church Podcast. At Awake, our mission is simple. Know God, take action. We pray this podcast will help you on that journey. Continue on our series. We've been going through this wonderful book of Hebrews that is really spectacular. There's so much to it, and we're, you know, uh, we could probably spend a year going through all this. We just chose to do it for over six weeks, doing two chapters at a time to explore the beauty, the power, the wonder of what Jesus has done, his role that he's taken on himself, and what he's done, and the supremacy of Jesus above everything else. He really is above all. And Hebrews points that out. And as Jesus shed dimensions, you know, I was, I was looking one day, studying the dimensions of God to be omnipresent everywhere at one time, to be omnipotent, all-powerful, all these dimensions that he has, faster than light, you know, all those things. And for Jesus to become a baby in human form, he shed I counted, the, I could count about 12 dimensions to come as he, as he did and to humble himself in that way to save the world, to be the Messiah. It's pretty amazing. It cleanses us of our sin. So this book, like many other books of the Bible, uh, holds explanation, revelation, insight, understanding to help us live. Uh, this book is relevant today. Just like all the books of the Bible, it's relevant today for you and I. So it's not just learning about history. It's how can we learn these things and then apply them to our lives, live them, have this understanding that is the right understanding, a kingdom understanding. And I want to thank um, Mike Cruz and Seth Wingate who shared the last two weeks. Uh, they did a fantastic job. And uh, I got to listen to both of those. I was here with, when Mike shared and I listened to Seth's last week and just wonderful and so we're just going to continue on here and dive in there. Seth finished off chapter 6, where it talks about the, uh, the order of Melchizedek uh, and the, the promises of God through him and what Jesus did. And I'm, um, you, you, may or, you probably know this already, but I'll just say it anyway, that the book of Hebrews, just like all the other books that has chapters and verses, Chapters and verses were not in the original writings, right? The writers didn't write there and go, okay, here's chapter two. Uh, they wrote a letter, whether it's to the Hebrews or the Corinthians or the Ephesians or the Romans or whatever, they were writing this letter. And so there weren't any chapter or verse breaks. That wasn't added until the 13th century. And I'm really glad they did. It's been really helpful for me to uh, identify where something is. Sometimes it it, I, I don't think it's in the perfect place, but man, they did a whole lot better than I could have ever done it. But it's always good. I say all that to say that though we're doing two chapters at a time, it's so important that you, when you read something, to usually back up several verses to figure out the context of what is being said uh, so that you fully understand what's going on. And so before I start verse one of chapter seven, we need to go back up to a verse or two before we get there uh, in verse, excuse me, in chapter six. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would bring out, highlight everything that you want to talk to us about today in this time, in this moment, that you'd remind us and bring us revelation and help us to see and to experience 
who you are in fullness, that we would not fall short in any way of receiving all that you have done and seeing all that you are. Lord, I know that will take all of history and, or excuse me, all of eternity to do all of that. But Lord, I ask that you'd show us today what you want us to see and hear in Jesus' name. So chapter six, verse 18, the last half of that verse says, take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Take hold of hope, it says here. Grab a hold of hope. Uh, when, I, when I hear that, I'm reminded of, it says of Joseph of Arimathea. I remember that he was the guy who went and got the body of Jesus down from the cross and put him in his tomb uh, that he prepared for himself. He let Jesus be there. It says that Joseph of Arimathea gathered courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Here it says, take hold of hope. Hope is available to take hold of. Courage is available for all of us to take hold of. Because of what Jesus has done, we can grab a hold of it. We can receive it. It says that everything pertaining to life and godliness we have been given. Everything pertaining to life and godliness, we can take hold of by faith, apply to ourselves. It's a whole other message, really, is how we apply the things that are real, that have been done for us. But hope is one of them. Jesus, as the great high priest, entered into the presence of God as a forerunner for us. He went ahead of us. I wonder if the Toyota executives... We're reading the scripture when they named their vehicle the forerunner. I have no idea. Um, I think of that of Honda. They were all in one accord. That was one of their main, their bestsellers also. So I have no idea if that's the case, but nonetheless, it worked. Go to down to chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Verse two, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. That's what Salem means. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Such an interesting passage talking about this character, Melchizedek, that we know very little about. Uh, he's found in the book of Genesis after Abraham had um, won this battle against these kings. Here comes Melchizedek out to meet him. He's the king of Salem, which is really the king of Jerusalem at that time. This is when, before Jerusalem was really uh, taken over by the Israelites. It was more of a Canaanite city. So this king comes out offering bread and wine and ministering to them. It's also the first mention in the Bible of the word priest is of Melchizedek. He's the first priest before there were priests. So, you know, the Mosaic law with the Levites and the priesthood all started about 400 years after Melchizedek shows up on the scene. So he's a priest before there are priests. 
He is an interesting guy. He, um, without father, without mother, without genealogy, no beginning of days or end of life. He's a forever being. He's a supernatural being. God does, he can do whatever he wants to do. How God inserts this guy, this person, into this story, and then it's referred to in the New Testament is pretty amazing. It reminds me a little bit of when Abraham was hanging out, and all of a sudden, God shows up with two angels. Remember that story? Genesis 18, and says, you know, um, you know, you're going to have a child, and, you know, Abraham and Sarah, they make him some food, and then he starts talking about Sodom, and they're going to destroy Sodom. It says, it's the Lord. So the Lord came as a, in the form of a man with two angels. I don't understand all that, but he did it. It reminds me of that. Here we have Melchizedek, again, meeting Abraham, and he is this God-like person no one understands exactly who he was, and, you know, but it tends to, by the way it reads here, that it seems to be Jesus. Before Jesus came, he showed up as Melchizedek, perhaps, as the king of Jerusalem or the king of Salem. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He doesn't have uh, any end to his life or beginning. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing how God inserts this right into here. And what does he bring with him to meet Abraham? He's got bread with him and he's got wine with him. How about that? Then, of course, fast forward to the Last Supper and you've got Jesus with bread and wine saying, this is my body, this is my blood. So I think this certainly appears to, fits the uh, description of Jesus coming before he came in the form of, of a king, as a king who would come bringing bread and wine to Abraham and to his men. Pretty amazing. Um, then verse four, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And again, here we have another first, in addition to the first priest that's mentioned in the Bible, we have the first tithing that takes place here. And again, this is before the Mosaic Law. This is before tithing was instituted and that you were supposed to give a tenth of all you had. This is 400 years before that. From his heart, Abraham just decides, I want to give a tenth of all that I have to this king. And so tithing is one of those things that's actually before the law. And it seems to be an eternal type of offering with no limits imposed on what we can give to the Lord, but it started here. Verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they're, they, these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. 
Verse 11, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, this is found in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and usefulness, excuse me, uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, for he with an oath through the one who said it to him. And he said this, the Lord has sworn, this is Psalm 110 again, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So those are where the oath comes in. Verse 22, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Here the writer not only describes eloquently and thoroughly that Jesus is supreme to any other created thing, we've been talking about that over the previous chapters, but he also, we also see that he guarantees a new and a better covenant. And I love that Hebrews is going to talk more about that later. Verse 23, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, all the Levitical priests, they died when they got old, and so someone took their place. So we got hundreds and hundreds of priests that have been. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, one of the things that a priest does is make sacrifices on behalf of people and the sin of people. So he's making sacrifices over and over and over again. And, you know, it says here that Jesus forever is that priest that makes intercession for us. Just his, his life is living and what he's done, the blood that was shed is still alive and it is cleansing all the time. There's this intercession from what his, his work and all that he's done that's always working on our behalf. And it's important that we, again, apply that reality to our lives. You know, even as a believer, as you started to believe and you repented initially and you gave your life to the Lord, you became a brand new creature, you were saved, you have eternal life, you're in a family, you're adopted, the Holy Spirit then moves into the inside of you, helps us, all of those things take place, but guess what? We still sin. We still need that cleansing blood to wash over us you know, and the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of that. So we have the word that shows us what is wrong and what is right. I'm so thankful. 
We also have the, the spirit of truth who convicts us and shows us what is wrong. And when we miss the mark, which is another description of the word sin, when you miss the mark. And when we sin, it's important that we are also have as uh, really a way of life that we confess our sin and we get cleansed and we apply the blood of Jesus. He's sitting there, always making intercession for us. His blood is still active, but I need to apply it to my life and ask him to forgive me. So I still, hopefully you do too, still are sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And when you sin, when he shows you, you shouldn't have, you lied about that thing. You did the wrong thing. Your behavior wasn't good. You got angry at that person. Uh, whatever it is that we can go before him and receive his cleansing. Lord, I confess that sin to you. Would you wash over me? Would you cleanse me and take it away? And it's gone. I don't have to work it up. I don't have to sweat. I don't have to try harder. I don't have to pray loud. He is there. All he's waiting for is for us to receive that which he already has available to wash over it. You know, one of the things I, you know, if you go to the ocean, I love the ocean. Sit there on the, on the beach. Nearly everyone loves the ocean. You sit there on the beach, I just think of the waves have never stopped for, since the earth was made. It just, well, I guess during the flood maybe. After the flood, the waves have never stopped, just coming. They just keep coming all, all day, all night. It's like a heart beating. It just beats and beats and beats. You're not thinking about it. It just happens. These waves, they just keep coming. And they come and they hit the shore, and they go back, and that salt, about 3% salt in ocean water, it just cleanses, it cleanses. And I think of that, like the, when I go to the ocean, I think of this is like the blood of Jesus. Just constantly, wave after wave, just cleansing me, cleansing me. It doesn't stop day, night, forever he's that priest, Jesus is. His, his sacrifice, isn't this amazing? One time forever, especially if you grew up um, in the Levitical priesthood and you were used to sacrificing things, to think that there was one sacrifice instead of thousands of them, seems impossible. That is how powerful Jesus is. That's how powerful his sacrifice is. One time for all time, the scripture says. One time sacrifice for all time, and that blood for all time cleanses. Never loses its power. Never loses its cleansing ability. Incredible. And 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The moment we confess, taking ownership, that's what a beautiful thing right there that's, again, getting lost in our culture is personal responsibility of any kind. It's always someone else's fault, right? But scripturally, you're not forgiven for excuses, you're forgiven for sin, right? So when I confess at any point what I've done, what I've said, my thoughts, my actions, my behavior, sexual sin, whatever it is, when I confess it, there's a cleansing. I take responsibility for it. Um, I like what Robert McMillan says, you can't disown something you never own. But if you own it, you can get rid of it. I like that. That's so true. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once and for all, 
when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Thank you, Jesus, the perfect son. Jesus, our personal high priest forever. John 20 says this, verse three. So Peter and the other apostles went forth and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. You guys remember this story? And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place all by itself. Have you ever read that verse and wondered what in the world that meant? Several years ago, I was studying the sacrificial system under the Mosaic law. You read the book of Leviticus. Uh, you read about some of these sacrifices and it's, I was just trying to get my head wrapped around. There's so many different sacrifices. You've got sacrifices for the things that you grow. You got to bring those and they, they're going to get burnt up. You got sacrifices for your, your sins that you are, have committed and that you might commit and all those things. And you're bringing birds and you're bringing goats and you're bringing sheep and you're bringing oxen. There's, I mean, you're, it's the, the job of a Levitical priest. Listen, I, I'm like the New Testament Levitical type of thing, right? I'm so glad <laughs> that I was not a priest back a couple thousand years ago, several thousand years ago. I really am. Their job was rough. It was bloody. It was messy. You were basically, part of your job is to keep a fire going constantly that you're burning stuff up with. Constantly. And I like burning with fires, honestly. It's kind of fun to build a big fire. But to do it every day, all day long, in the heat, in the cold, no matter what it is, and you're taking people's stuff, uh, food stuff, and their animals. If it's an animal, you've got your knife, you're slitting the throat, you're bleeding them out, and then you're cutting them up into all these kind of pieces, and you're lifting them up, and you're putting them on the altar. You've got blood everywhere, and you're constantly doing that. Daily sacrifices. The Levitical priests, when they were done with work every day, you know, they probably had blood up to their elbows on their arms. And they're worn out from just making sacrifices, sacrifices on behalf of the sin of the people, making these sacrifices to the Lord. What's interesting, I was, as I was studying this, I started reading the Talmud, which are the rabbinical writings. It's the first time I'd ever really dove into some of the Talmud, and I was reading that. And I have a friend who is a rabbi in Israel, and when I ran across this thing, I, I sent this to him because I, I said, is this really how this happens? Because it was, here's, when I read this, it was amazing to me. The Levitical priests, when they were making these sacrifices all day long, their garments were considered holy as they're doing the work of this bloody work. And at the end of the day, they clean themselves off and they take their priestly garments off and they carefully fold them. And then they lay them at their head, and some say that they use them as a pillow to sleep on at night. So you only take your priestly garments off and fold them carefully and lay them on your bed once the sacrifices have been done. When I saw that, and then you read in John chapter 20, when they ran into the tomb, 
And here are the folded garments of our high priest, Jesus, who are nicely folded because the sacrifice was completely done. He took them off, folded them up, and there they are at the head, and there they are at the feet, fulfilling completely what the, every priest had done for thousands of years, over and over and over. Our high priest folded up his garments because all the way done. One, his sacrifice, perfect and complete through all time. So I, I wrote that to my, the rabbi. He, he agreed. He said, that's exactly how it works. Amazing. Thank you, Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary, it is, yeah, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Verse 5, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. All these things are a copy and a shadow of what happened in the future with Jesus. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. For by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, saying this again, it's a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now, I know that there are groups... Um, Many of them who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but who live by the Torah and the Old Covenant still. But clearly here, what Jesus did and what was prophesied ahead of time, we're going to read that in a second, is something so much better. The New Covenant, listen, we, we got a deal. There's just no doubt about it. From not only all those sacrifices, but the New Covenant is spectacular. And we're going to talk more about that next week as well. But verse 7 here says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming. This is Jeremiah 31. Says the Lord, When I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. From the east to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And the old covenant, of course, kind of summarizing a part of the old covenant. You had the daily sacrifices for the sin of the people, from their crops, animals. You had only once a year, the high priest, not just the other priest, the high priest once a year, could go into the Holy of Holies and meet with God. Just once, one time per year. In the new covenant, 
the 613 laws, there were 613. The Ten Commandments were just part of those. There were another 603 laws for living that you had to go by and live by. 613 of them get reduced in the New Covenant to two. Now, that's, that's an upgrade right there. 613 to two. Two, you shall love the Lord your God with all of yourself, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These fulfill all of the law. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus gave us the biggest upgrade of all time in every way. And not just once a year does a high priest get to go meet with God. The veil was torn in two from top to bottom, and every believer in Jesus gets to approach boldly the throne of grace and mercy where they can go right in and meet with God personally. How about that? I mean, this new covenant is not even comparable to the previous one. Uh, I've heard also some people say, no, it's just a renewed covenant. It's just like 2.0. No, it's completely different with much better promises. And it is, it's just spectacular for us. So we're going to pick that up next week. Lord, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for these words. Thank you, Jesus, for being our great high priest who lives forever without beginning or end. He's the alpha and the omega has gone before us as that forerunner to pay the price so that all of us in this room and all who are listening can be free. Freed from sin, freed from bondage, freed from the curse, freed from fear of death, and alive to fulfill our purpose and enjoy a clean conscience, forgiveness of sin, and personal closeness with you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your word and your words to us today. Lord, I ask that we would, that you would help us by your spirit to keep us to walk in truth and in holiness, that we would give our lives for your purposes and your will, that we would follow you all of our days. Lord, I pray that our ears would be open to hear you this week, that our minds would be open to be transformed by you, and that we would have your mind in every way. Thank you for your word. Let it resound on the inside of us. May your word and your words, Lord, be what we wake up to and what we go to sleep to. Be what we think about. We thank you, Lord, for this day and all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. For updates on future episodes, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. For more information about Awake Church, visit awakechurch.com.